Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, John. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for joining me and taking time out of your busy schedule. How is your week going so far? Oh, it's one of those days. Uh, just been, it's been a busy week, but today started uh, about 6 o'clock a.m. my time with phone calls. Uh, so it's, uh, I'm well into the day already. It sounds like you're still doing some founder-led sales, or is it just customer calls or a mix of everything? Yeah, my early morning calls are, we have team members that are in uh, nine different countries, so we do daily stand-ups, and uh, today is the busiest day of the week uh, for kind of those joint stand-ups. Now that I opened up a can of worms, maybe I should continue down that thread. What are your thoughts on like founder-led sales in, in a startup? When should the founder hand off yeah, you know, it, I, I have the chance or I've had the chance to work with and invest in about 400 startups. So I have a pretty good uh, idea of, you know, success stories and things that lead to success for teams. You know, and a couple of things that I've found is that, you know, in a single uh, uh, in a single founder company, right, you tend to hand those sales off sooner than when you do if you have one or, or you know, two more founders in 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 a perfect world, we typically see three founders in a company and you have somebody that's more focused on the, the sales, the growth engine that's there, somebody more focused on the technology implementation side, and then kind of the, the CEO that's kind of guiding the course of the company uh, that's there. Those companies that I've invested in tended to be more successful in a shorter amount of time because they had three different leaders in different areas that were focused. Um, not to say that single founder companies don't succeed as well, but in those particular cases, it's super important. Your first couple of hires that you have on the growth side are extremely important. You know, they're non-founders. You have to make sure that you incent them correctly to feel like they're a part, you know, that they have such a large impact on the success of the company. They have to feel like they're a part of the company and they're compensated well, whether it's shares or whether it's a commission structure uh, that makes sense. But I'm, I'm also a big fan of, 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 of founders and CEOs of startups being involved in the sales process from day one. Like nobody knows the company better typically than the CEO and they need to share that, have the ability to share that vision with the customer and also let their team members hear that vision as it's being shared to customers so that they can replicate, you know, that knowledge when they talk with new customers. And do you have a recommendation around when the the right time to hand off the founder-led sales? Does it depend or the founder should always be involved to some degree? Yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of the CEO always being involved in sales to show the company that that's, you know, it, it, it's a major part of the company's success. Like it's the number one indicator of success. What typically happens is that uh, if you're a single founder and you're hiring a VP, you typically hire them sometime close to when your MVP is going live uh, to your customers uh, that's there. And the reason that that happens is most founders don't have the funds available at the very beginning to bring in a high-powered salesperson. So they wait as long as they can to do that. Uh, in a perfect world, you would have that person on day one. But then the reality is 
It typically happens uh, within a month or so of your MVP uh, being released, and then you begin to really focus on customer acquisition. Yeah, I'm actually really intrigued by this topic. But before we go any further, maybe you should just introduce yourself to our audience uh, just to give them some background and context. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is John Darbyshire, and I'm the founder and CEO of SparkSuite. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, my background, uh, my first big job kind of out of school was at Ernst & Young. I was a partner and led their uh, one of their consulting practices that had about 1,500 people in that, a global practice. Um, from that, I left and started a company called Archer Technologies back in 2000. Uh, we built a no-code platform that focused on the governance, risk, and compliance space. Uh, we helped uh, mainly enterprise organizations go live with things like online banking to understand the systems and the security processes and the regulations they needed to be in compliance with. Uh, was sold that company in 2010. Uh, today, that company does about 700, 750 million a year in recurring revenue. So it's it's kind of the leading player in the GRC space. Uh, after that, I had the chance to uh, relax for a little while and do some investing. And I, I said earlier, I invested in about 400 startups and had the chance to work with lots of founders. And then about three years ago, uh, I got the bug to kind of get back into the tech space. I enjoyed doing more than I enjoy advising on things. So I uh, started a company, Smart Suite, that is focused on work management. So we help organizations manage any process or any project on a single platform um, using a, a, a no-code type approach to that. Continuing on this thread, perhaps for a few more minutes, you mentioned hiring the first sales leader, typically from what you've seen, should or does happen around that product MVP stage. What are some of the challenges that founders face when trying to hire their first VP when you're not very well known and it may be more risky for a VP to want to join? What have you seen successful in getting those A players on the team? Yeah, there's really two things there. The, The first is that you have to understand your your sales strategy and approach as an organization. Are you a product-led growth company, meaning that people come to your website, they download, they uh, sign up for a free trial, it's a lot of self-serve along the way, and then maybe some touch points in the sales process as they have already started the trial? Or are you non-PL, where you're um, PLG, where you're going directly to enterprise accounts and trying to uh, sell into those large accounts. Two very different types of sales processes. Some SaaS companies have both. They have their um, their small to medium into the first part of large accounts as more product-led growth strategy, and then they have an enterprise account strategy uh, as well. But you need to know that to know the type of person that you want to attract. If you were saying that early on in the first two years of your company, your product-led growth, uh, you might not need to hire a VP. Maybe you need to hire a really experienced director-level person that is really good with customers and really good at training your sales reps that you'll have as part of just the follow-up actions on the product-led growth. If you're talking about enterprise sales, that's very different, right? You you. Uh, you, you want to probably bring in a more seasoned person that knows the industry, the space, and is very excited about your product and can communicate that well to enterprise accounts uh, one-on-one, very different than a trial uh, perspective. And you know, the second part that I would say is that y- you have to have an interesting product and value proposition to attract the right VP to come in. So they have to believe in 
the founder itself. They have to believe in the product that's there and they have to feel validated that they that the industry, uh, the marketplace is big enough to support, you know, the, the product or server, uh, service that you're offering as well. Uh, I've recruited and, uh, you know, went after quite a number of VP of sales, uh, positions that's there. And that's a different type of person, meaning they are very, um, revenue driven people, the commission structures and incentives are very important to them because they know they have such an impact on the company. So that uh, compensation package is also very keen, you know, to attract those, those higher end VP of sales. So what have you seen work really well to bring them on? Like, are you selling them the potential? Cause if there isn't already a lot of revenue and traction, it's really down to them the founder and the marketing team to to make it happen. But is there a specific profile that one should try to reverse engineer the characteristics of this person when you try to look for them on either through LinkedIn or headhunters? Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me and what I've seen happen in the companies that I've been able to invest in or have ran myself, you know, the first thing that we do is we look in the space at some of the best uh, salespeople in that particular industry uh, that, that's there, whether it be a competitor, someone that's adjacent, or just somebody in a SaaS product that you feel has some of the knowledge about your product that's there. And that's where I'd start is, you know, you go after the big guys. But what typically happens is a, a lot of the those big guys are pretty happy where they're at. Um, you know, they've been involved for quite some time. So you ask them for recommendations, you know, and say, Hey, we have this type of position. We're looking for people like you with your skill set. You know, have you run across people that might be ready to make the move from more of a, a director into a VP level, you know, type position, uh, that's there. So I, I love that strategy. I've hired a lot of people just based on recommendations or had lots of interviews based on recommendations that are there. And then to attract those people. You know, when you don't have a lot of revenue, that's the first thing a, a VP of sales is worried about is, again, their commission structure. Like if you don't have a lot of revenue, what does their compensation look like over the next year if they, they're bringing in accounts for the first time? So two things happen. The, the first is you use uh, stock compensation. You know, stock is a form of compensation that's there. Uh, it's, you know, you typically see between one, four, sometimes 5% that gets carved out for a VP of sales uh, that comes in. Uh, that four to five is really, really high. The, the standard is in that one to two, two and a half percent range, uh, which is pretty typical, meaning uh, also that they don't have to put any um, any cash down to purchase that stock. That stock is actually granted to them at that. So it's in, in their mind that's there's value in that in that stock from from day one. The second part is you typically have some part of of a guaranteed commission structure uh, over the first three to six months, so they can count on. Hey, I have my base pay, I have my commission, but as I'm growing things and building the infrastructure, I get some portion of my commission structure guaranteed, knowing that it's going to take some time to ramp up the sales engine uh, in the company. In terms of your comment on stock, how fast does that 2% get vested for the salesperson? Yeah. So that's always a discussion, especially with salespeople. They're really good at negotiating uh, with you. Uh, a typical vesting period is two to three years. I've seen it as high as four years uh, in some companies, but that's kind of on, that's the edge case. It's usually in the two to three years. And typically the vest is either monthly or quarterly uh, is is what you would see. And they, they just want to know that um, 
that it's vesting over a reasonable amount of period of time. And then there's typically a clause that's in there that if the company would be acquired during the vesting period, that the VP of sales would, all of their stock would become vested at that point in time if there was some type of liquidity event uh, that's there. And that that's the risk for any VP level hire in a startup is you do a lot of hard work. You're not fully vested. The company sales because of that hard work and you don't get to participate because all of your shares didn't vest. So you typically have a clause to say on liquidation event, uh, you know, those would fully vest. Yeah. The devil is in the details as they say. So <laughs> that's sure. why I was <laughs> wanting to press you on, on that. And then following up on PLG and sales led, are you seeing adoption of PLG amongst enterprise companies for higher ticket items and especially in the security world? Do you think it's too early for product-led growth with high ticket items and security products or are you seeing something different? And of course, any recommendations you have on having this approach? Yeah, sure. Let me, let me kind of weave this into a story for you. So you know, at Archer Technologies, when we begin to sell into enterprise accounts, you know, we were typically selling into the chief information security officer, the, the CISO suite. Um, but we found that we typically, those people are very busy and it's hard to get time with them. And we typically had to make connections with people on their team, but below them, right? And those people would then uh, evaluate our product and make decisions on recommendations back to the CISO at some point. So Product-led growth is very similar to that, meaning uh, anybody in an organization can come and start a free trial through your website and evaluate your product for some period of time before needing to make a purchase decision or put in a credit card that's there. That's perfect for people and enterprises that just need to build momentum. They're trying things out. So I'm a big fan of PLG into enterprise. It happens quite often that People start using it on different teams inside of an enterprise, and then it begins to bubble up to the VP that maybe does something more formal with a larger group. But at the same time, your enterprise sales team is coming from the top down. So they're starting at that CISO level, trying to sell in while your PLG is kind of starting at the bottom. And what you're hoping is that you're kind of meeting somewhere in the middle at some point, and both of those strategies lead to that sell. So it's not just enterprise. Um, I've also seen quite a number of enterprises just come in and sign up through PLG with no contact at all. We see that as SmartSuite our, ourselves, which is, you know, the ultimate sale for any SaaS company is when that happens uh, because your sales cost is just, um, it, it's maybe 10% of what an enterprise sale would be. Even your commission structures could be different with your sales team. So it sounds like top down, bottom up using PLG as like an additional tool to facilitate the bottom-up approach. What have you found to be most effective in getting practitioners into the product-led funnel? What are some things that turn them off? What are some things that excite them to want to try it out for free? Yeah, I, I can tell you, again, just my, my personal opinion if you're talking about millennials and Gen Zers and trying to get them into a product-led funnel, uh, they're big on other people uh, creating YouTube videos, um, you know, any type of content, whether it be Facebook, whatever, where they're talking about their experiences with the product, showing how they do it, and and using that as the opportunity to then come and test a product. We find that for us at SmartSuite is the biggest single way that people get to us is through videos produced by our affiliates or our 
uh, consulting partners uh, that are on board. So that brings some credibility and in, uh, into the, you know, into the product immediately for someone to try that. The second thing that we find is that there are times that people come in and start a trial and they don't want to talk to somebody from the company. They want everything to be self-serve. They want to make up their own mind. They don't want to feel the pressure of a salesperson reaching back out. And in our case at SmartSuite, uh, we don't reach back out with the salesperson at any time during that process. We reach out with an onboarding specialist and their role is to say, my job is just to give you, it, it, if you start a trial with us, we give you eight hours free of onboarding assistance. Uh, and their job is to say, here's the different ways that I could help you. I could model processes that maybe you have now back into SmartSuite so you could see it live and make a determination. I could import data if you want to set that up. I could do training for you or your team. It's anything that you want it to be that's there. But not one time in that discussion do we mention a sale. It's all about them coming to the conclusion, does SmartSuite provide value to them or not? And we found that especially with millennials and Gen Zers, that's the approach that they tend to prefer is they don't want to be pressured. They don't want to start a trial and have to enter a credit card number. They're going to opt out if they see that in most cases. At the end of a trial, um, if they're not ready to purchase, they either want to extend the trial or they want to convert to a free plan for some period of time that maybe has limited features as they continue to test it. And then they'll make the decision and when they, you know, to purchase. And when they do make that decision, again, they would rather do it in the product by just saying, I want to purchase this plan. I want to put my credit card in. And I don't, again, I don't want to talk with the salesperson. That happens in about 80% of the cases with, with SmartSuite. You know, we're a SaaS-based company. The other 20% of the people come in typically a little bit older, turn the older side of millennials and up. They do want to talk with somebody that they feel like is sales and they want a formal demo from that person and they want a presentation maybe to a group of people. So uh, we do both, but our, our focus is on that 80%. We don't, uh, we don't have salespeople follow up unless the customer is requesting that. So the best case scenario is to cater to everyone, boomers, Gen Z, Gen X, understand who you're dealing with. Let's say for verticals that are more security conscious, how do you overcome product-led hesitation or is it something you just can't get over and you just, again, need to understand your customer and work with them more traditionally through a sales-led approach. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, when you talk security and compliance type products, that's a very specialized part of the industry where those people are very risk adverse and that's their job each day is to, you know, to secure the company that they're at and ensure that they're in compliance with different standards. So the products that they bring in, those are typically some of the first questions that they ask. And for those companies, you have to present the information in a way that allows them to understand I'm in compliance with these security standards. These are the policies that I have in place that allow them to kind of continue. Uh, we've also found not just with this group, but overall, uh, we do a lot of personal loom videos. So when somebody comes in and we see that they've sign up for our product and they pick a category of processes. Maybe they're a salesperson, marketing, customer support. We see that that's what they've selected to kind of get started uh, with us. Um, we'll customize our Loom video back to them to say, here's how we can help you, you know, accomplish these things around these types of processes, right? Again, not salesy, just it's more, 
here's what you might want to explore as you're thinking about SmartSuite. What we typically find is that when we share those videos, those videos get shared inside of that company multiple times, just like we were having a conversation or doing a demo. So it, it helps those people feel like, all right, I don't have to talk to somebody, but I got this information back that I can then share with other people on my team. So we, we do that quite often, especially when we run into cases like you're mentioning with people that maybe we know are have some specific questions that typically need to get answered each time. We'll put that in the loom for them. So you can track basically who's viewed your videos or how many times it's been shared? Yeah, if you can see, we, we don't track exactly who, but we can see how many times that that's been watched. So we can see, you know, if that video is going across a, a, a company and you have seven or eight views, you know, that there's so much momentum going. And then that would kind of tailor the next outreach that we would do just from an email uh, perspective back to them. I, I guess one other way you could tackle the product-led resistance is to insert a salesperson at the top get them co comfortable and feeling like this company is trustworthy and that we comply with whatever SOC to ISO right. or whatever. And then, then you can let them go with, with the product-led self-serve and your customer onboarding specialists and the salesperson can get out the way again and come back at the end when they need to close yeah. Typically what you see in product-led growth companies is the, the first thing is you, you have to have a compelling product that people are interested to come in and try out. If you don't have that, it's hard to have a product-led growth strategy with people starting trials. The second one thing that you typically see is that you'll see a, a person sign up and invite four or five people and their account maybe starts with five or six people, but then you can see the momentum happening in the account over time where they add more licensed users and maybe they upgrade their plan that's there. And then those are specific points for us to know that, okay, this has moved from four or five people, maybe to a team of people of 20, they've upgraded their plan. Now we have a more formal process where we reach out as a salesperson, more of a, a customer service type call though, to say, Hey, we just want to check on you. We've known that you've upgraded. Is there anything that we could help you with? We want to make sure you know the key features that are available. And that that typically leads to a discussion about Hey, here's how I plan to use Smart Suite over the next year. And we kind of start a sales cycle from that point forward to encourage them to, you know, upgrade, add more users, those types of things. Yeah, it's really like becoming an art form, putting all the pieces of the process and experience together so that it's harmonious and that the customer is loving the experience. It, it is. I, I think it's, and it's, there's a lot of science that's in there in that, you know, in today's world, you could use products like Intercom where we can track every interaction that we have with the customer, but we could also see all the metrics behind the scenes of what pages they've accessed, how many times they've logged in in the last you know week, day, whatever that might be. And then we could use that information and rules to determine how to communicate back to them. So we can communicate back via email. We can do in-app communications where things pop, pop up as they're in the product to say, hey, John, we, we've noticed that you've been using our product, but you haven't tried out automations. You might want to take a look at this, right? So it's, it's very easy to kind of set those communications back up. And then you get the rule sets, right? Everything just starts firing, you know, to, and there's not a lot of human intervention that needs to take place as the, you know, as the person is not just demoing, but, you know, 
maybe they have a paid plan and they're starting to use your product and you just want to make sure that they're getting the full value out of the product. Technology is really a great enabler to helping this art form and buying experience become better. And I think this is a great segue to our theme of the show, which was no code, self-serve. So without any further ado, why are you passionate about no code and how did you get involved with no code as a passion and a business? Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to... Um early 2000, 2001, I was building a company, Archer Technologies. Our very first customer was a large Fortune 100 company. And we had actually sold that company and that deal before we wrote our first line of code, which was interesting. So we were profitable from the very beginning when we started. But every time that I would go visit with that customer, which was every week to show them what we had built that week for them, they would come back and say, hey, on this form, you have this as a dropdown. I'd like this to be a list of checkboxes or radio buttons. Can you change that for me? Right. And I go back next week and they'd say, can you add this additional field that we, that we forgot about, but now we've just, you know, remembered needs to be on there. And what happened at that point in time was I said, all right, we can't hard code all of this for these processes. We have to build, and we didn't call it no code at the time, but we're building this adaptive system where people can go in using drag and drop and configure fields to be on forms to collect information. They could pick different field types. They can pick different display types for each of the fields that they select so that we don't have to keep going back, you know, back and forth, changing things on the fly. So that was my introduction really to no code. Uh, there was another company that was taking that same approach at the time, which was Mark Benioff at Salesforce. So we were two of the very first kind of second generation no code platforms that kind of came to market that was focused on enterprise accounts uh, that was there. Obviously, Salesforce has just crushed it on the sales side, and Archer Technologies is the leader in the GRC space, but it was interesting that they both started with no code, right? And that is just drag and drop. So no code is all about allowing, you know, regular everyday people that, that know the process or the project, you know, that they want to set up and manage, you know, the information that they want to collect to be able to go in using drag and drop and configure that process or that flow. Um, themselves and for their team. And they don't need to work with maybe IT or an outside developer to make that happen. Uh, in some cases, they can maybe do 80 to 90% of what they want, and then they need to do some integrations with some other products. So maybe somebody from IT helps set up the integration that's there, or maybe they use a consulting partner uh, to help with that piece. But no code is all about uh, citizen development, meaning you know, regular everyday users that understand the process are able to just configure the product to support how they want to do their work. And that's the, that's the passion I have is working with those types of people in building out those processes. Yeah. Cause I, I really can feel that pain personally, like as working at a startup as the first marketer on the team, you just want to hit the ground running, but you're being held back by having to customize and develop all these reports and dashboards and analytics. You know, Google Analytics is pretty much plug and play, but that's segmented from your your other dashboards and like putting everything together on one pane of glass, as they say over here in the US. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's frustrating. You just want to focus on revenue and customers and customer success, but you're wasting so much time and resources and budget on developing, customizing these reports and dashboards that we're not reinventing the wheel here. These dashboards have existed for like 
more than 10 years, but we still have to create them from scratch every time you start up a new Salesforce or HubSpot instance. And um, to your point, and I guess this is in your wheelhouse, I've been looking at vendors that can start to extract the data through APIs that can then display my data in a template that exists on, on their end. And that seems to be cutting down the time dramatically. So I'm very curious about what you guys do and how it can be beneficial for startups. Sure. Yeah. Let me, uh, I'll tell you a little story of how SmartSuite really got started. And it it relates to all these um, companies that I've had the chance to invest in and meet with founders. And what we found is we, I would spend a lot of time just talking about internal processes that they needed to build. Um, around, you know, sales and marketing and HR and customer support and product management, software development. And we talk about, you know, I'm going to use Salesforce to do my sales and HubSpot to do marketing and Bamboo for HR. And okay, now I've got information across all of those and I, but I need to share some information, you know, back and forth. So now I have to figure out how do I integrate these products together? And we spend as much time talking about that in some cases, as we did about the product or idea that the, the startup had, you know, the, that the founder had for the startup. Um, so the idea behind SmartSuite was to build kind of a third generation no-code platform that solved that problem, but not just for startups, all the way up to Fortune 100 companies. So anywhere from one to 10,000 users, our platform can support that that's there. And the idea was to, was to take... Um, uh, about seven or eight key products that were in the industry that I found that those startups were using and try to combine the capabilities, 90 to 95% of those features into a core platform. And that included, you know, things like form builders where people are just collecting information, right, that they need from either internal or external collaboration tools, whether they're, you know, using Slack and email and, and text messaging, right, that needs to just kind of be built into the context that's there, you know, project management capabilities with tracking tasks and people and due dates and priorities, uh, process management capabilities of I need the CRM or I need a marketing solution, right? And then um, on top of that integration, you know, things like Zapier and Make that allow you to integrate between things, just building that into the core so that you have it. And then business analytics with the dashboards piece that you're talking. So we looked at um, the players across all of those spaces. We had about 400 data points that we tracked across each one to kind of decide, you know, if it made sense for us to to start smart suite or not. And then once we decided that it did make sense uh, that there was a need, we spent uh, two and a half years with about a hundred developers to build our core platform before we ever made any announcement to anybody that we were even smart suite. Uh, so I didn't even update my LinkedIn profile uh, at that time. So the thought process behind that was we wanted to make sure that we really solved the problem and had all of these features so that when somebody came to us, um, let, let's say like yourself, you're probably using six or seven different products and things that you're doing now, it's like, how could I move all of those into smart suite? Or maybe how could I move, you know, maybe two thirds of those into smart suite and keep some of the things that I like, but I need a way to integrate between those two very efficiently. So, right. So that's why we have the integration piece. So our ultimate goal is to have a single platform that people could use, but we also realize that a lot of companies have, um, current products or internal products that they built that they're really happy with. So we provide the best of both where you could use us and you know, uh, use integration to bring that data in and out of the products. I think the next question will also segue nicely. 
as startups, time is not our friend. So whatever we can do to bypass bottlenecks and time-consuming products that may add value down the line, but if they're taking six months to, to deploy, you've kind of lost before you even started. <laughs> so I, I guess where I'm going with this is what what are some of the common factors amongst all the startups that you've invested in that have led to their success? Yeah, I, I think that I, I've learned through my own investing and some friends that I have in the venture community would uh, talk to me about this quite often is that they invest in people first and technology second. And when I first started investing, I was the other way around. I would get so excited about the technology and I would think that the team could pull it off. Like I'd like, this is such a great idea. You guys are gonna kill it. And what I learned is that the people are what make the difference. And I even, some companies that I even sat on the board at that I felt were, um, didn't have that great of a product, but they really had a good team and that team crushed it with that average to below average product, you know, that they were actually selling. So I've, I've learned personally that it's the people that make the biggest difference. And, um, the second part of that is the second most important part is process, right? So you have to understand in the company and keep your, what processes you need and you need to keep them as simple as possible so that you just get your work done and you move on, right? I don't need process for the sake of having process that's there. And when you have really simple, good effective processes with great people and you have a great idea, like that's, that's when things really begin to happen with companies. But if the people aren't right or the processes aren't right, the, the chance of you being hyper successful is it's, it's pretty low from my perspective on, on what I've seen. So how are you determining whether this group of people are great? I would imagine you don't have that much FaceTime with them to, to determine, or are you really skilled with your intuition and gut feeling, or <laughs> is it past experience on top of your gut feeling? How do you make that determination? Yeah, I, I found that my gut feeling is not great because I get so excited about the idea. So I, I tend now to invest a lot through venture funds that have people that are very good. They're very analytical and they take kind of the technology out of the equation and they just analyze the market in the space uh, that's there. And then I invest through them into those companies, which is is better for me personally. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, that the, the hardest part for me was was getting too excited about the technology and not focusing on the folk on the people that are there. And there's two ways to focus on the people that I've seen. The the first one, if you take Bain Capital uh, I've had the chance to, or Bain Ventures, I've had the chance to work with them in the past. They love to work with entrepreneurs that have been successful prior, right? So they tend to have entrepreneurs that are a little bit older in most cases, a little more experienced, and they love entrepreneurs that have domain experience, meaning they have, uh, you know, 10 years of experience in the industry where they're creating this new product or have this new idea for, and they've been successful in the past, right? Uh, and that's kind of their niche and they've done really, really well. Um, but that locks a lot of them out of, you know, you have young people coming up that are 20, 21 years old that have these amazing ideas and no experience and you can't count them out in all cases, but you have to find a way uh, to help them attract, you know, the leadership team around them that maybe does have some of that experience, especially on the operational side, 
that allows them to focus on that really cool product or idea that they have and let somebody else begin to kind of manage the, you know, understanding how to organize the company with the sales team, the marketing team, the operations, you know, just the HR, you know, aspects of the company. If you think about it, like if you know your stuff, why not invest in someone that has, you know, been in that niche for like 10 years and now he's productizing all his knowledge. It's just, can he build the right team to execute? And I guess, can you pass along any advice for those founders in in sort of finding the right people to have the team that investors would want to invest in? Because you can't always hire, been there, done that, people on the team because of limitations with with your funding and and resources. Yeah, I I think that, you know, one of the services that venture firms offer now is helping find resources inside of the company. And in many cases, they have recruiters on staff that are free back to the people that they invest in, where they're trying to find talent at all levels across an organization, not just VPs, but at any level to help that company begin to grow. And as a founder that's thinking about capital, even seed round capital uh, that's there, that's something that's important to think about. You know, those companies that can provide that level of service back. And I had the chance to work with Bain Ventures in the past and saw that firsthand just over a period of a year at how quickly they were able to help us identify and bring in some talent. They helped us identify an acquisition target that we actually acquired and brought in. And they had an influence on the strategy of things we could do that would lead to more growth, like from an inside sales perspective. And the first eight years I was self-funded, had no outside capital, and then brought them in in at the end of year eight and really saw tremendous value as an entrepreneur. So that opened my eyes as an operator to the value that a venture firm can bring back to uh, you know, a young startup company. And you mentioned, we mentioned common sort of denominator for success and process, which can stifle success. So can you give some examples of bad processes within startups? Where does that typically arrive? Yeah. So it's, think about as a startup, you know, as you're, you know, from one to 25 people, you're typically just getting stuff done, right? And there's a lot of I don't need a ton of process. I just need to know from the founder the tasks that I need to get done today. And that's pretty typical. Like I'm not even planning out the week. I'm just, this is what we're doing today. We're responding to customer requests. We're we're just trying to validate product market fit and bring customers on board to use our product. We need as much information as we can about that. Um, Once you get past 25, especially when you're in the 50 range, that's when process begins to start being either a good thing or a bad thing for a startup that's there. Now you have to think about when I onboard somebody, I bring somebody new into the organization, what's their title, what's their role, who do they report to, what are the things that they do in their job? That's all process, right? That that just kind of needs to be figured out. Um, they need to to know as they're doing their job each day, um, you know, where do they get their direction from? Is it coming from goals and objectives that the CEO or the founder has set that roll down every month, every quarter? And so when I talk about process, I'm kind of talking about that top-down communication approach from the founder on what the, the goals and objectives are for the organization. I'm big on monthly goals, quarterly goals, semi-annual, and then annual goals, right? Where those kind of flow throughout the year. And then I'm really big on an agile process for each team, where each team spends the first 10 minutes of each day 
in a team huddle, a stand-up where they, each person has the chance to say, this is what I, I worked on yesterday and completed. This is what I have planned for today. And these are any blockers that I have that I need help with. And in those small team huddles, you don't typically have, you know, five to eight people that's kind of in a standup. It's not for the whole company, but each individual team should do that. And then that bubbles back up that day to the founder, CEO, CEO, whoever it might be that is responsible for taking care of blockers. Like, especially if you're a software company, that happens quite often. And somebody needs to make decisions that keep people uh, able to, you know, keep doing their job and working uh, each day. Yeah, I'm a, I'm quite a fan of the daily stand-ups. Vern Harsh, Scaling Up, he, he wrote a book. I don't know if he coined the stand-up thing. I mean, stand-up came from the developer world, this term, but I think he was the one who brought it or, or evangelized it in the business world. Uh-huh. He wrote a book called Scaling Up, and he kind of walks you through best practices of how to have a... Um, effective stand-up because as you know they can go pear-shaped pretty quickly if you don't have a process no pun intended for your your daily right. stand-ups it's also a kind of an art getting those tight and within your whatever 30 minute allotted time if there's four or five of you on that so yeah that could probably be another workshop on its own <laughs> It, it is. I, I think that's the value that some venture firms kind of bring to young startups is they have playbooks that include processes and information so that you're not writing that for the first time. If you've never done that before, you can say, all right, here's, you know, it's, it's always easier to take three or four pages of a process and change that to the way you want to do it than to start from scratch and try to write that yourself. Uh, that's there. Yeah. Again, tying back nicely to our no-code uh, hands-off theme. Um, so moving on, are, are you seeing any trends in the VC world right now that you would like to share with other founders? Some of the things that may be obvious to some, but we can repeat them. It's fine. Like obviously the recession um, are VCs still holding off. I've been hearing that. VCs are now preferring to reinvest in ex- in their existing portfolios versus seeking out new startups. What are you seeing and hearing on the ground? Yeah, I, I think you just said exactly what's happening. Um, the venture firms that I've invested in, and I get to see, you know, the new investments that they're making each month. Um, there's definitely been a pullback over the last year, and um, in some cases, some venture firms have made decisions not to make any new investments in new companies for some time, but they're looking at their current portfolio of companies that are being successful and they're kind of doubling down and putting more capital to work back inside of those existing uh, portfolio companies, which is great for companies that already have investment and they're getting more attention from those venture guys, uh, the venture teams uh, that are there. Not so great for people that have new ideas that are trying to get funding for the first time. That's, um, it, it's much more difficult today than it was a year and a half, two years ago to have, you still have some of those discussions, but it, the money is not flowing as, as it was a couple of years ago, for sure. And what is your advice to those startups seeking their first round of funding? Yeah, you know, for any venture um, fund or person that's evaluating a company, you know, they're going to look at the people, they're going to look at the idea, they're going to look at the product market fit, right? And um, 
they're going to get excited if they see product market fit with some level of success that's happening, regardless of the level. But if they can see month over month that you're growing at a pretty good clip, you know, knowing that you started at nothing, but they can see that that idea is starting to take off. They like the market. They like the people, right? They like the product that, that you've built. Then that discussion gets a lot easier. It's a much harder discussion for startups that don't have customers right now. And they're trying to communicate what could happen. I would say those are the ones that are having the hardest time getting funding overall. But if you can show that you're, you're having some level of success, uh, whether that's free accounts or paid accounts, if you're in a product led growth company, those are things that, that the venture community is going to pay attention to. And when do you think the money will start flowing again? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's six months to 12 months, but it's probably closer to the, my perspective, probably closer to the 12 months before we maybe get back to what felt like it was more normal uh, a year or two ago. And maybe we don't ever make it back to two years ago when the money was flowing at a level that you know people have never seen before uh, kind of in the space. But the, the good news is there's, there's a lot of money sitting inside of venture firms that are, is idle right now. And they're looking for, uh, you know, more secure, safe ways to invest that money, but it's there, right? They, they're, they want to put it to work if they find the right, you know, team and idea. Awesome. Well, I really in, enjoyed all your insights and, and recommendations. Is there anything else you would like to cover before we wrap up here today? No, I just like to say, you know, I have a passion for, for no code and we built smart suite kind of around that passion. If you have an interest in understanding how a single platform might be able to help manage processes in your organization, go to smartsuite.com and just start a free trial. And we promise no hard sales. We'll leave you alone, but we'll, we, we will uh, help you explore the product uh, if you ask us to. And speaking of low touch, is there on social that you're active in engaging with the community are you linkedin twitter guy where do you hang out on social if people want to connect and pick your brain a bit more on this stuff i'm a linkedin guy i think that probably shows my age <laughs> maybe more so than than twitter but uh yeah you can link in with me at john darbyshire and it's john j-o-n and uh yeah just either follow me or, or linkedin and i'll accept your connection awesome well again i really appreciated the conversation and thank you so much for your time and uh, thanks everyone for tuning into the founder pack all right it was a pleasure thank you brendan we hope you enjoyed this episode of the founder pack podcast with brendan ron part of the itsb magazine podcast network if you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.